Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, I still have an update on the Armenia-Azerbaijan war. That'll come later, though, because today we're going to talk about Europe. Now, mainly Western Europe, but I will touch up on some of the happenings of Eastern Europe. The Belarus election comes to mind, but with the year drawing to a close, Britain will finally and formally make its infamous exit from the EU. And that, my friends, has consequences. Consequences that go even further beyond what many Eurosceptics and Brexiteers have been talking about for the last four years. All of that and more today. something disruptive, something terrible, something normal. What in tarnation? Excuse that. Um, (laughs) We have some weather over here, but (laughs) okay, okay. So last time I mentioned that I believed that the Europeans were in for a rude awakening, geopolitically speaking. Now, uh, go my notes here. I predict the coming end to luxury politics. And what do I mean by that? I mean, no more will the fanaticism of the offended hold sway. You think that's wishful thinking? Well, just look at the stances on immigration over just the past year with the pandemic going on. Just look at EU's policies regarding Turkey and how they are paying. They have been paying the Turks to keep the Syrians out. They stood by Greece and Bulgaria when they built border walls on their collective borders with Turkey. And now you have the United Kingdom um, really trying to play hardball on its immigration policy regarding the EU And I'll touch upon that and why it's going to cause tensions between the British and French and really how it already has. But the luxury politics are coming to an end. And this crisis with the pandemic and namely the lockdowns has really accelerated these trends that were already in motion. There's also Germany under the boot of Russian energy. And my note for that is, what choice did they have? There's no oil in Europe with maybe the exception of Norway, but that Norway gets to do what it wants with its oil. And so Germany can't always rely on them to basically have an exclusivity deal. So they've turned to the Russians, Nord Stream 2. Now America has placed sanctions on it and has effectively been paid off by the Germans now to back away so Germany can get its natural gas pipeline directly from Russia. And the reason I say that they are putting themselves under the boot of Russian energy is because the Russians have routinely shut off energy exports to countries who do things that they don't like. Uh, The Ukraine is the best example we have of that. and Poland. Russia has no problem using its energy weapon against countries that do things it doesn't like. And with Germany holding disproportionate say in what the EU does, well, I guess the EU probably isn't going to be doing too much about Russia. That doesn't stop them from getting involved in, say, Belarus. They have backed up the uh, election, the election, the opposition to Lukashenko, who is the self-proclaimed dictator of Belarus, the last dictator in Europe, and, uh, well, the election was 
hotly disputed, namely by Western powers. And uh, there's been protests in the streets, and the protests haven't stopped. They aren't as bad as they were when the election first went down, but they're still going on. And my belief is that Lukashenko did win the election, but not by the large margins that he used to. His popularity is waning, and he seems to have come to the... Or he seems to be coming close to that same conclusion. But for now, I think it's probably safe to say that he won. And even if he didn't, he's still in charge. <laughs> but, um, so there's that. And uh, the Europeans have tensions with Turkey. But surprisingly, few of them are actually acting on this. And... Not surprisingly, it's the ones, the European nations that are closest to Turkey that are acting. So, you have Greece and Bulgaria. Bulgaria is there, and they're content now that they've built their border wall. But Greece has almost always been at odds with Turkey for hundreds of years. And those tensions have been... Uh, flaring up lately with the Eastern Mediterranean. The Eastern Mediterranean where the Turks and the Libyan government, Libya's in a civil war, so it's I have to make the distinction between the government and the rebels who are led by General Hafdar. Turkey has made an agreement with the Libyan government for their econo their exclusive economic zones to in intersect with one another, which would effectively cut off everyone else from the Eastern Mediterranean and cut off Greece from Cyprus. Now, the Greeks don't like that. The French got involved. And Egypt is standing by. They have established uh, political relations with Greece, the Egyptians. And I mentioned... I think I mentioned that... Egypt would be like a main competitor for Turkey in the Middle East uh, in my the my very first episode. But, um, so there's tensions in the Eastern Med. And it's already drawn in the French. So it's it's a matter of time before the rest of Europe begins to really start reconsidering their geopolitical situation. Because... America is nowhere to be found on this issue. These are NATO allies. That, that's a really important thing to note. Both, well, actually all, France, Greece, and Turkey are all NATO allies. And yet they're in this conflict with one another, this dispute over the Eastern Mediterranean. Now... Turkey has made no, uh, how do I say this, they have spared no expense, they have uh, left out no details, so to speak, with regards to their desire to become a new Ottoman Empire, and that would mean expanding largely to the south, where all the energy resources are, and the Suez Canal, and the breadbasket of Egypt and potentially a land border with their ally, the Libyan government. But uh, Turkey's been getting itself into trouble lately. They've, they're overextended, but I don't know if overextended would be the right word because they are only half committing to these uh, conflicts that they're getting themselves into. They half committed to the Eastern Med. They half committed to backing the Libyan government, they've half committed to their occupation of northern Syria, and they've half committed to their backing of Azerbaijan, you know, via the militants and mercenaries that they sent to Azerbaijan. I don't, I don't know if it'd be correct to say that they are overextended. I saw somewhere that 
Despite their economic troubles, their military industry continued to grow. And that was interesting to me. It was an interesting thing to me because they're getting involved largely militarily in all these regions. Not maybe for economic or geopolitical reasons, but they're using the guns to try to enforce their will. And their military industry is thriving. So could they be trying to gain experience in multiple theaters of combat and multiple types of combat? Are they trying to do that? Because I saw the other day that they shot down, I believe it was a... Whose jet was it? Was it Armenian or was it Greek? They shot down a jet and they were they used lasers to do so. They were the first country to do this, you know, to a jet that wasn't their own. And when I thought about it, uh, it really caught my it really piqued my interest mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. when you think about the region and some of the limitations that uh direct energy has, you know, uh, humidity and cloud cover can really ruin the potential for direct energy weapons, but Turkey is in a largely arid region, and they're in a largely arid region where there's very little cloud cover, which means direct energy works probably better in Turkey's neighborhood than it would for a lot of other places in the world. Even when you're operating it over, say, the Eastern Mediterranean or the Black Sea, it's wide open, there's relatively little cloud cover, and it makes direct energy weapons highly feasible. And that kind of fed into my last point on my last podcast, you know, maybe it's just uh, confirmation bias for me, but... Uh, it seemed like a little bit of proof that the military, the army, would be the final say in a conflict rather than the new dimensions of warfare, uh, like cy- the architects of cyber power that I called them, were saying were information, and cyber warfare would rule the day, but and now you see that it's the combination of the multiple dimensions of war that will decide who wins. You can't just use one and not the other. You know, it was really interesting to look at, especially when you look at it through the lens of Turkey trying to expand into empire, and you look at the lands in which they would expand reasonably, And these are optimal lands for direct energy weapons. You're talking the deserts of Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Arabia, maybe Iraq, or even Israel. This is perfect weather for direct energy weapons. Now, what else did I want to do? Alright, so that's Turkey. Back to Europe. They've closed their borders rather than left them open. Well, closed as far as they consider the term closed borders. See, Western Europe has this thing where they don't want to close the border, but yet they've backed up Greece and Bulgaria who did close their borders. So it's kind of a kind of like an indirect thing that really does more to show a trend than anything else of which direction they're going in. Uh, Germany is highly reluctant to say anything about Turkey's actions in the Eastern Mediterranean, despite Greece basically begging for the major powers of the EU to do something, to which only France has responded. Germany does not want more migrants from Syria, despite what they may say. This... Their actions speak louder than words. The fact that they chose to focus their political attention on the elections in Belarus rather than 
the conflict brewing in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, says a lot. It says a lot, especially considering Greece is a, not just a NATO ally, but a member of the EU, and Belarus is neither. It, it says a lot where their attention is, and that in and of itself is, again, an indicator of the trend that this lux this period of luxury politics is coming to an end in Europe, where Germany is aware of the geopolitics and is basically taking steps to avoid potentially having to uh, confront Turkey. Because that means more migrants and Germany... I don't think the German government believes that they are in a... that they are in a paradigm yet where outright saying no to immigrants or the migrants from Syria would not produce a backlash. So, the geopolitics, the geopolitical thinking is making a return to Europe. And that, of course, is bringing the end to this luxury politics. No more will the offended hold sway over wishful thinking. Alright, so, and that that's the luxury politics aspect of it. I also want to get into a larger point of Europe being united no more. Now, there's obviously Brexit, and I'll get to that more later, because there's a lot to talk about there, but Germany is refusing to use its money to hold the center. That means no bailouts, and they have yet to come to an any agreement on what type of stimulus or economic assistance that they would use to assist the other members of the EU. Because most of this money is going to come from Germany. And Germany knows this. Which is why they are reluctant to do so. They don't want to use their money to hold the center anymore. Greece, as we were talking about just a minute ago, is going its own way over the Eastern Mediterranean dispute with Turkey. They're all, they are already going their own way when they built border fortifications while the rest of Europe was talking about how open borders and being uh, diverse was more important. Now, however you may feel about that, but again, actions speak louder than words. They haven't stopped the Greeks. They haven't said anything negative about the Greeks building that wall. Greece is going its own way. I saw an article saying that they were increasingly looking to America for assistance. Uh, we'll see where that goes. America is uh, inching towards isolationism every day. But um, for now, it seems like a good bet. A better bet would be to probably open up to the Russians. Because Russia's right there. You know... Russia has maintained good relations with Cyprus as well, so you would have a friend who is nearby and who will almost always be involved, whereas, again, America, historically speaking, tends to fall into these periods of isolation and, and staunch isolationism that it doesn't come out of for a couple decades. So... In my opinion, the better bet would be to uh, look to Russia. Because the rest of Europe has shown where it stands on the issue. The, obviously, the landlocked countries in Europe aren't going to do much, but the major powers, you know, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, uh, they're not coming. Well, France is. So there's France, and that's about it. Britain is focused almost exclusively on Brexit, so they're not coming. And who knows if they would even have interest in showing up if they weren't focused exclusively on Brexit. So, Greece going its own way will probably eventually lead it to finding friends who care about the same things it does. So that's a step in the positive direction, also an indication that the end of luxury politics is coming, and fast, 
to Europe. Uh, there's also Italy. Italy is disillusioned with the EU, not just over the migrants, which it was before, when uh, I think his name was Matteo Salvini, when he took power uh, briefly. He's uh, looking like he's on track to win again. I know that uh, I remember uh, hearing that there was like a coalition formed against him and they were able to take control of the government in the last election. But now with COVID, the lockdowns regarding COVID and the lack of uh, any help really that they got from the EU, uh, of, I think it was a super majority of Italians were either in favor of leaving the EU or leaving the Euro. And you're probably not going to... And that was before COVID. That was before this. Um, the lockdowns and the economic crisis that ensued. So you can only imagine that those numbers have shot up greater to the point where you would have a simple majority on either issue, you know, leaving the EU outright or just leaving the euro, potentially, and that is, again, an end of the luxury politics and a symbol that Europe may be united no more, no more European Union. The end for the European Union hasn't come yet, all right? I don't know when it will come. I just know that as the trends stand, the end is coming. Brexit probably won't be the last, especially if the Brit the British economy does well in the years following its actual exit from the European Union. And that will cause the Europeans problems. That will cause them gr a great deal of problems. I'll get into that in just a minute. And then from there, I'll segue into uh, Britain's potential opportunities post-Brexit. So that was Greece, Germany, Italy. There's a resurgent Turkey. Again, they want to become a new Ottoman Empire. And if I'm going to be honest, they're probably going to succeed. They're probably going to succeed. Again, they've been half committing to these conflicts. And I thought about it, why that would be. And I remembered that Erdogan purged the military after they tried to overthrow him in a coup. So he might be trying to rebuild his, exper his experience of his officers with regards to leading men and retrain uh, their ability with the new weapons while he feeds the military industry. And the military industry feeds, obviously, the military, and it's just a circular, it's a positive feedback loop in favor of military action. And considering that the military industry has continued to grow, even while many other sectors of many other economies who lock down are in decline, it's looking like, it's looking like the mobilizations of world... Hmm, how should I put it? Should would it be World War One or World War Two? Uh I'd say Germany, World War Two, you know, except without the except without the uh Nazism. So disproportionate amounts of the economy are going into the military, and that's probably going to fuel an expansionism in Turkey that Eventually, their neighbors aren't going to be able to stop, especially if they were to focus on a single region. If they bear down on Syria tomorrow, uh, well, that'd be it. Now, they'd be fighting a low-intensity war of occupation, but that would be it. Syria would be theirs. So, there's that. Back to the Western Europe that I brought up. Uh... Well, there's Britain. There is Britain. Why are we talking about Britain? Why have I why have I hyped up Britain for the past couple minutes? That's because with Brexit, a lot of old 
previously frozen geopolitical tensions are rising up again in Western Europe. You have the Anglo-French rivalry being re reignited, and it's not even just with the Brexit trade talks, but back a couple months ago, uh, there was a shipment of masks that was supposed to go to Britain. It was moving through France. France stopped the masks and they did this multiple times with multiple different shipments of masks that were heading to England and well my country first my country first that was that was just a I guess now looking back that was just the beginning because now you have France playing hardball on the Brexit negotiations uh, particularly with regards to the fisheries, the common fisheries policy, where the Brits want full sovereignty over their waters, obviously, because why? Fisheries was a major reason why they left the EU. So it wouldn't make sense for them to then turn around and have keep, in, keep the same policy of common fisheries that played a great deal in them leaving the EU to begin with. That it, that wouldn't make any sense. But the French are playing hardball with that. They want their fishermen to have access to UK waters. Uh, maybe it's because there's lots of fish. I'm not entirely sure because France has lots of coastline. And uh, I do mean a lot. They have coast. They have coastline to the Atlantic. They have coastline to the Western Mediterranean. They even have coastlines in the English Channel. Not entirely sure why they feel quite the need to be in British waters. But maybe, again, it could be the quantities and maybe even quality of the fish in the North Sea, particularly around the British Isles. I would have to look that up. But that's a point of contention between the two right now. Another point of contention is that Apparently, the British had paid France to basically police its border and not allow migrants to cross the English Channel. They paid France a couple billion, uh, I forget if it was pounds or euros, so me being American, I'm just going to say dollars. <laughs> they paid the French a couple billion dollars to keep the migrants from crossing the channel and then they found out a couple weeks later that the French were doing just the opposite they were essentially escorting migrants across the channel halfway and then they would let the migrants go the rest of the way once the British Navy showed up and I think it was Nigel Farage who recorded it and the French got mad at him <laughs> It's fun to it's funny to watch. But that's another point of contention. France Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the Prime Minister of France, he basically demanded that they pay more but he didn't he didn't keep up his end of the deal when they paid him less, so they're the British obviously aren't gonna pay him more. Especially not with him playing hardball with the Brexit negotiations. So, the Anglo-French geopolitical rivalry has been reignited over just the past couple months. So that'll be something to look out for, especially once we get into the other piece of Britain's post-Brexit uh, opportunities. But uh, we'll get into why Brexit is important right now for Europe. Why is Brexit important for Europe? Well, one, the British were the second largest economy in Europe and they, the money that they previously paid into the project that they are no longer going to be paying after this year is gonna leave a gaping hole. A gaping hole in the funding that, again, Germany isn't gonna be willing to pay. And that's the economic side of it. 
Well, just that's just actually just one aspect of the economic side, because when you take a look, when you take a step back and you look at the history of the region, the British have historically been a counterweight to European hegemonies. You look at France during the Napoleonic Wars, you look at Spain, you look at kind of the Ottomans, not so much the Ottomans, but um, a counterbalance to the Habsburgs, you know, with the Austria-Hungarian Empire. They've counterbalanced the Russia, the Russians at certain points. They counterbalanced Germany twice in World War One and World War Two. They have historically been the final counterbalance in European hegemonies and a major contributor to their downfall, if not one of the determining factors of the downfall of European hegemonies. Because in the Napoleonic Wars and in World War II, the British were at war with France and Germany, respectively. From day one, the British were at war with Germany from the day they invaded Poland. The British were at war with France since the French Revolution. And they did not end their war until the Napoleonic Wars and World War II came to an end. And guess who lost? (laughs) It wasn't the British. It was France. It was Germany. And the British paid and bribed people to join them and basically used the economic might of empire to steer countries in the direction that they wanted. Now, World War I was an anomaly because the British put significant land forces on the continent. They usually don't do that. World War II was more historical, where they engaged at the times and places of their choosing. So, you could see if if war ever breaks out breaks out if war ever breaks out in the region you could see a replay of that strategy that show up hit hard and disappear strategy that the british used but for now it's about economy and politics because after this year is over the brits will have left completely now i mentioned that they were almost exclusively focused on Brexit. But after this year, that will no longer be the case. And we'll get into what that means in just a second. Alright, we're back. Now, what does Britain not focusing exclusively on Brexit mean for Europe? Well, it means they can do stuff. It means they can do a lot of stuff. Like I mentioned before, Britain is the historic counterweight to European hegemonies. That hegemony right now is the European Union. Britain just existing as a separate entity from the EU throws into question the entirety of the European Union and its feasibility. Or not just its feasibility, but the necessity of it. Because for a while, you had people believing that it was necessary to be a part of the EU, and that was that's a large part of what the Remainers in the UK believed in the lead up to the Brexit nego- the Brexit vote, and many of them still believe this. So what happens when Britain is independent and proves itself and that it doesn't need the EU? Uh. Well, the the coronavirus won't be the only virus that the Europeans will have to deal with because they'll also be the virus of ideas. The virus of, oh, you know, if the, if the, if the UK can leave and be fine on their own, maybe I can do that too. Maybe Italy says that. Maybe Spain says it. Maybe France says it. Maybe Eastern Europe goes their own way too and tries to form some type of pact uh, defense pact so they don't get steamrolled by Russia the Europeans namely the people in the European Commission and Parliament and whatnot, 
they don't know whether or not that'll be the case and quite frankly they can't take that risk they have they have to play hardball on brexit they can't let britain go on friendly terms they certainly can't negotiate as from a position of equals because that again throws into question the very eu itself they that's why they they can't they can't they try to play hardball every opportunity they get even when they don't have the leverage to do so and they ultimately have to back down in the end they don't have the choice they have to do it they have to do it this way they have to be aggressive and tough on britain they have to make britain feel pain because if they don't other member states of the eu will get ideas faster and if the british are sitting there waiting in the wings to give them a trade deal well that's just another that's a one-two combo that's a one-two combo that the eu cannot afford because it's, uh, it's not just the trade deal it would be losing an entire economy from a state leaving the eu say italy leaves and gets a trade deal with britain that makes britain stronger it gives the e- it gives italy it would give italy a moment to breathe so that it can you know negotiate other trade deals and find its way in the world and again it would spread the virus of ideas to other nations let's go oh look italy left the eu and they got a trade deal with britain britain's doing pretty good after leaving maybe we maybe we should leave too maybe we should leave too and then they take their entire economy away from the eu and get a trade deal with britain and britain will have plenty of incentive to negotiate these trade deals why wouldn't they they go oh you left the eu all your you you want a trade deal we can help you you know we're right here you know the eu they they really put you through a lot when you try to leave we know how that feels you know it would be it would be a really it would be a real blow to the gut to them if we were to work out some type of trade deal hmm? that'd be nice and that's what would happen you, you just watch you just watch i i have a strong feeling that that's exactly how these next couple years are going to play out especially if other uh exit movements get off the ground with again my main eye being on italy but other european states are not out of the question they are not out of the question especially if britain proves to be successful all eyes are on britain right now britain existing as a separate political and economic entity throws into question the entire eu that is why the eu is trying to make britain economically dependent on the eu so that they would still have the leverage and so it would look like oh we can leave the eu but they would still hold disproportionate sway over the economy if britain gets the brexit that the brexiteers want effectively a no deal brexit if necessary but a truly independent britain that is a danger to european hegemon and right now that hegemon is the european union so that would it would cause the uh, what's the best term for this a mass secessionist movement from the eu especially in countries like italy and spain who f- and greece even who felt like they got a raw deal in the in the 2008 financial crisis and this 2020 coronavirus lockdown crisis so that would be a great danger huh i've said that multiple times now but now what let's talk britain itself let's talk britain let's talk britain what does it mean for britain well first things first they're gonna need a trade deal they're gonna need a trade deal but that doesn't look like it's going to be the problem that many people who feared Brexit were making it out to be because now 
They have already negotiated a free trade deal with Japan. Japan is a very large economy. I don't know what place exactly they are, but they're a large economy. And immediately after that, you have America waiting in the wings for a free trade deal negotiations. But America isn't going to do that until after the British have fully left the EU. So you already have Japan, and America is waiting in the wings. That's more than enough with regards to just the sheer size of economies. America alone would be enough to displace the EU. But America and Japan together is more than enough. More than, more than enough. But why stop there? Because now there are talks, well, increasing talks, of a closer integration with Canada, Australia, and New Zealand in the future. And this has been named CANZUC, C for Canada, A for Australia, and Z for New Zealand, and UK for the UK. Kanzuk. It's meant to be, from what I have gathered, a really close-knit political cooperation, economic cooperation, uh, free movement of peoples between the countries, and they would even, uh, how do, what was it, what was it, military, they would cooperate closely militarily, almost as though they were one. And that gives me ideas of a new British Empire. Yeah, but I guess it wouldn't exactly be British Empire, even though Britain would hold disproportionate uh, sway in all of those theaters, economics, military, and political, just by a sheer weight of their demographics and their economy. But let, I guess the more accurate term because this, this is the Anglosphere, but minus America. I guess the more accurate term would be in like a Anglian Empire. Yeah. We'll just call it the British Empire, you know, that it sounds better. And the sun would never set on it. It would never set. <laughs> the <sun laughs> Speculation is fun. But let's look at the stats while we're still speculating. What would the stats of this political, economic, and military integration, not necessarily a union, but integration, what would that look like? Well, collectively, they would have a population of 136 million people. Now, when you break that down, it's 67.8 million just from the UK. So, uh, what is that? About almost half, almost half comes from the UK. You have 37 million. 37.5 million coming from uh, Canada. Yeah. You have 24.9 million coming from Australia. And you have a uh, good old 4.8 million coming from New Zealand. In terms of land area, they would be 18 million square kilometers. And their economy would be 6.5 trillion. Uh, I'm going to. Assume we're using pounds, but we're going to call it dollars. $6.5 trillion, 45000 per capita. So that's some really good numbers. Really, really good numbers. Uh, where would that put them? Would that? I know it wouldn't make them number three. Or would it? I'll, I'll have to... I'll, I'll do a little update on that next time, Jim. But... Here's some big numbers, really big numbers. So, but let's look at the feasibility of these impressive, this impressive would-be British Empire. Uh, the large majority, a very large majority of all four countries support this movement. Uh, so, New Zealand actually has the highest support with 82% favorability, and this was, uh, I think it was eight, uh, 2018 when these numbers came out. It could be higher, could be lower now, but uh, overall it trended up from their poll in 2016. 
So, New Zealand has the highest support at 82% favorability. Canada has 76% favorability, with Quebec having the lowest, uh, one of the lowest supports in the country, but even then it was 63% favorability. Australia is 76% favorable towards it as well, so they're, they're on the same page as Canada. The UK, interestingly, is the country with the lowest support uh, for it. This uh, Kanzuk, new British Empire. But even then, it's 68% favorability, which is still a supermajority in favor of Kanzuk. So, that would be a very interesting thing, especially when you... Let me pull up my... Wikipedia on it so I can see the, the little map it shows for me. Uh, yeah. It would be... It, would, it looks like it would be a bit challenging logistically because you have Australia and New Zealand right next to each other. You have Canada and the Brits just across the Atlantic. But it would seem like it would be hard for the British to get to Australia and New Zealand. But considering that Canada does have access to the Pacific they would be able to easily integrate with Australia and New Zealand better than, say, the UK would. And maybe you would see, like, infrastructure projects. Yeah. Who knows? It's it's an interesting thing to look at. Maybe, the, maybe they'll go on a reconquista of South Africa. <laughs> or they'll take the Suez Canal and get into a war with Turkey or the new Ottoman Empire. Speaking of empires... Let's let's count. Let's count these new empires that we could be looking at here. We have China, one. We have the new Tsarist Russia, two. We have the Ottoman Empire, number three. And now we're looking at number four, the new British Empire or Kanzuk. Things are getting interesting around the world. I told you we'd watch the world together. Uh, I, mean, I told you we'd watch it change together. And here it is. Things are getting interesting. Ooh. But, uh... So... That's Kanzuk. And what Brexit means for the EU and for Britain itself. Who knows where they go politically after that. We just, we just know that they would have a lot of room to maneuver when they're not focused on one thing. So... Expect them to get involved in other places around the world, especially especially once they get their footing back with a trade deal. So I expect after Brexit is done, the British are going to focus almost exclusively on trade deals, similarly to how um, America was focused on renegotiating its trade deals after Trump won the election in 2016. So that'll probably consume a good two, maybe three years of time. Most likely two, because that's how long it took for America. But uh, after that, the UK is unchained. They're unchained, and they're probably going to do some interesting things. We don't know quite what they'll do just yet. We just know that their very existence will be antithetical to the existence of the EU. And they will likely grow stronger as the EU falls apart from the secessionist movements that will likely pop up and come to fruition. Now, we'll move on to that update I said I would give on Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, there is a ceasefire that has been negotiated by between the two by Russia. I thought it was odd that they hadn't done it previously, and I'd brought that up right before we got into the fun part, which was speculating, but now it seems that the Russians have indeed uh, brought about a ceasefire. Now, in this ceasefire, both sides took time to exchange both prisoners of war and the dead, so that's a good thing, you know, it's good, as interesting as it is to watch, you know, these are human lives we're talking about, so the fact that there's a ceasefire is it's a good it's good so then you have diplomats from Russia have succeeded in bringing them to the table 
I put a caveat there where I said they brought him to the table, at least for now, because both of the previously belligerent nations, uh, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, they have already accused each other on the day that the ceasefire broke out, mind you, they already accused each other of breaking the ceasefire. So this is a really right now, it's a really tedious piece that could dissolve tomorrow. For all I know, it could the ceasefire could have been broken by the time I'm finished recording this podcast, and I just didn't catch the news. Or maybe it'll fall apart tonight, maybe it'll fall apart in a week, right after I give a next report saying, oh look, peace has been achieved, and then th- that day, the war breaks out again. But for now, we have something good. The ceasefire has been uh, agreed to. Uh, I don't know if it'll last, considering the stance that Azerbaijan had taken with regards to the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave of Armenians within Azerbaijan, and that stance being that they won't make peace until they've taken the province from them. So we'll see where that goes. There'll probably be more skirmishes to come in the future. But for now, we have a ceasefire. And... We have an updated death toll. We have 500 confirmed dead in just Armenia alone. Now that's double what the numbers were, the confirmed numbers that I gave last time, which was around 230, I believe. And this is just Armenia alone. The majority of those being military deaths, which I guess from a war, a perspective of war, that would that's kind of the best case scenario. Uh, you don't want your civilians dying more than your troops. So, I guess as far as war goes, that's kind of a best-case scenario. And Azerbaijan has reported at least 30 dead from bombardments of schools, and preschools and kindergartens, from the constant shelling that was going on. Both sides had their artillery pointed at each other, and they were just firing off salvos after salvos. And so they've also reported that hundreds more were either dead or wounded. They, We don't know what the numbers are for the Azerbaijanian military. I haven't found a source that could give them like a decent estimation on what that could be. But we can probably assume it's somewhere around the previous total number that I gave you. If the numbers have increased this much for Armenia, we can probably assume that they have around 230 total dead in Azerbaijan, which would bring us up to a three-quarters of a thousand people dead, which is in and of itself a tragedy, but at least there's a ceasefire right now. We can hope and pray that this ceasefire lasts. Uh, otherwise, I get more things to talk about. But uh, The militants that Turkey sent to Azerbaijan um, are now likely to become a point of contention because as far as I know they haven't left they're still chilling out in Azerbaijan which now that there's no fights there's no conflict at least for now they could have the potential to become a liability for Azerbaijan because an interesting thing that I Learn. I was watching the Duran. That's one of my sources. Uh, they brought up that Azerbaijan is Shia Muslim, and the uh, militants that Turkey had sent to them were Sunni Muslim. Now, anybody who dabbles in the Middle East will eventually get around to the hot point of contention that is Shi- the ideological split between Shia and Sunni Muslims. They hate each other. Almost, uh, in some cases, they hate each other more than they hate people of Christian faith. Or, God forbid you be an atheist over there. Or, I guess in their case, Allah forbid you be an atheist. But, now, our, our Azerbaijan, Shia Azerbaijan, has a thousand Sunni militants read put terrorists in as we would call them chilling out in the country and i don't believe they have left this could become a problem for azerbaijan very quickly these people 
specialize in guerrilla warfare and asymmetrical warfare. Because that's what they've been doing in Syria and Libya. Now there's a thousand of them in your country and they have great disdain for your your political affiliation with regards to the wrong kind of Islam. You add to that that the president of uh, Azerbaijan is secular? It looks like a powder keg ready to go off at any given moment. Russia has made it clear that they those militants are a a point of concern for them and probably have brought up that they're a point of concern for Azerbaijan too now that there's no war to be fighting and they're just chilling on your country uh and again it is unknown if they will leave we know that they haven't left or at least that's what I've been able to gather but it is unclear as to whether or not they'll leave at all now Armenia could have called in its alliance but that seems like it'll ultimately be unnecessary because there's a ceasefire Iran has managed to stay silent throughout all of this so there there you go that's their best case scenario no problems no riots for them and the Azerbaijani oil and gas infrastructure remains intact so I guess, again, as far as war is concerned, this has ended in a best-case scenario. We'll see how things unfold. And that's that's really all we can say. We'll see how things unfold. This tenuous peace in this... I guess it would be safe to call it a proxy war. I didn't want to call it a proxy war last time, but I, now that I think about it, it really was a proxy war. But instead of being a proxy war between superpowers... It was more like what you saw in Libya or the Eastern Med, a proxy war. Well, I guess the Eastern Med wasn't a proxy war, but more like a conflict zone. But a proxy war in Libya between regional powers rather than superpowers. And the regional power here would be Russia and Turkey. So I guess, yeah, it was a proxy war. And good thing it came to an end, at least for now. And we'll just have to wait and see where that goes. Uh, a lot of things are changing. A lot of things are changing. We'll be right back after this break. The situation on the ground is changing, and not just in the Middle East. As we've covered in this podcast, Europe is going through some changes, and that pace of change as the British assert themselves and begin to focus on things other than Brexit and trade talks, that pace of change is likely to accelerate. Likely to accelerate and really fast, probably. So, there's there's Europe. We, we did a little recap on the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. And hopefully... For the sake of the people living there, we probably won't need an update next time. But, again, this is a very, very fragile piece. No one knows if it'll hold. Hopefully it does. But, again, it may not. We'll see how Germany and France continue to respond to things in their neighborhood. Will Germany stand up to Turkey? Probably not. Not unless forced to. Will France try to start its own empire-building campaign? Sure, I'm sure Algeria would be first in line. Well, not first in line. They'd they'd be at the top of the list. I'm I'm sure Algeria would be at the end of the line. (laughs) They'd They'd be straight ahead. Quebec would be first in line, but I don't know if France is gonna get over there. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's all for today. We covered a lot, covered a lot, got into the, the stats of potential new British empire, new, new empires popping up all over the place. May, maybe Germany will, maybe they'll try to 
reprise their African holdings. Maybe there'll be a new scramble for Africa. Yeah, but, uh, speculation is fun, but for now we don't have the facts to back that up, or to, or to segue into such speculation. But re reality is oftentimes just as fun to watch as speculating. Speculating makes it funner, but you know. Yeah. But, uh, well. I've run out of things to talk about, as you can tell. And that's about it. That's all for today. That's all for today. I do hope that you've enjoyed this podcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks. It's changing everywhere. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you have been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.